BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, December 5th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. So the holidays are almost here, and you know you don't have time to go to the post office. It's going to be packed with everybody mailing holiday gifts. So use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own home computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. And if you use the promo code MINDS, you get this special offer, a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes $55 of free postage. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter MINDS. That's Stamps.com, enter M-I-N-D-S. This episode is also sponsored by Scribd, the subscription book service that lets you read and listen like you own every book in the world. With Scribd, you get unlimited access to more than half a million ebooks and 30,000 audiobooks on your phone, tablet, and web browser, all for just $8.99 a month. But if you go to scribd.com slash minds right now, you can get started with three free months. That's three months of unlimited ebooks and audiobooks and help support the show. Just go to scribd.com slash minds. That's S-C-R-I-B-D dot com slash minds. This episode is also sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. This show marks the end of our three-part series about our origins and our DNA. We started out with an interview with George Church, one of the pioneers in genome sequencing, who gave us a sense of where the science of genetics currently stands and where we still have to go before we have a complete understanding of our genetic code and before we can use it to improve our health. Then we spoke with Christine Keneally, whose recent book explores how our DNA can help us learn about our roots and who told us about how geneticists are starting to solve historical puzzles, like why one person in Newcastle, for example, had four grandparents from Devon. Finally, today, Cynthia Graber is back with an interview with Donald Johansson, the discoverer of Lucy in Ethiopia 40 years ago. Lucy was the oldest fossil ever found at that time who walked upright. Cynthia Graber is a science reporter whose recently launched gastropod podcast explores the science and history of food. 
Cynthia, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Great to be with you. So tell me a little bit about why you chose Donald Johansson for this interview. Well, to be honest, I met him in person. He was speaking at a conference I was at. I was at the National Association of Science Writers Conference, and that's connected to the Council for the Advancement of Science Writing, and he had one of the plenary sessions there. But it was it was exciting, too, because, you know, Lucy plays such a role in our understanding of evolution, and just that name is so evocative. So to get to talk to him personally about the discovery was really exciting. Yeah, obviously, I first encountered Lucy in high school. And I have to say that even at that time, you know, it was vaguely interesting to me. But it wasn't until I listened to your interview that she really came to life. And so thank you for that. Sure. So tell us a little bit about what we're about to hear. So I I spoke to him about a few things. We talked about the significance of Lucy. Well, first, we went over how, you know, what the discovery was like for him. I wanted to hear that story again, even though I know he's told it so many times in the past 40 years. And then we talked a little bit about Lucy's role today in science, what we've learned since then, what we still have to learn. And we also got into a little bit of uh, her role in pop culture, which was kind of fun. Yeah, awesome. So that'll be our interview for today. But before we get there, let's talk about some science headlines. So Cynthia, what's coming up on Gastropod this month? So this is actually, it's pretty exciting. It's our last one of our first season. We started off in September, and we're kind of wrapping up this month with a big episode on seaweed. Um, I am guessing, uh, Indre, that you've eaten seaweed before, (laughs) I imagine. Yeah, and my husband, you know, claims that it's one of the healthiest things you can possibly eat. Is he right? He actually, he kind of is. I mean, I didn't really know that until I was doing the reporting for this, but he's not far off. Um, but, you know, I, I I don't know about you, but until recently, I had only eaten it in, say, Japanese food, you know, maybe with su- sushi or, you know, a seaweed salad. But it's been eaten along the coast of basically every place with a coastline and basically also as long as humans have been living along the coast. So there's a lot of really interesting archaeology about it. On Gastropod, we go into the archaeology of, of maybe even how it affected the migration southward in the Americas of humans. And that migration may have actually had to do with seaweed. And there's also really interesting research today that is dramatically speeding up seaweed farming, and it's kickstarting an entirely new modern seaweed farming industry in New England. And that also means the importance of kind of creating a new market in the U.S. for fresh frozen seaweed, which I even get to taste on the episode. Wow. But, it, you know, I, I know that we're, we're dealing a lot of this farming of um, sea animals, of course, is deleterious to the environment. What about farming seaweed? Does that have the same impact or is it actually better, more sustainable um, in terms of, of farming? Actually, what, what's one of the things that's really interesting about seaweed is that you can pair it with some of these more deleterious, as you were, as you were saying, um, these other types of, of fish farming, and that it can actually help improve the water around those fish farms. It's also really good at picking up nutrients from um, it, along our coastlines that come from humans, that come from uh, farming and come from sewage treatment and even animals. And so seaweed actually does help improve the water quality. So it actually is environmentally beneficial. Wow. Well, that sounds really good. I'll have to listen to it. So I wanted to touch on a study that I came across that's apropos of the holiday season. So we all know this holiday season, there's a theme that features heavily, and that is shopping. Well, it turns out that some of our primate cousins are much smarter shoppers than we are. We could learn a thing or two from capuchin monkeys. In a new study out of Yale, these monkeys weren't fooled by name brands. That is, they realized that a higher price tag doesn't necessarily mean better quality. 
we, of course, are not that savvy. And in another study, humans consistently rated wine, for example, as tasting better if they thought it was more expensive. So if you put a if you put an expensive price tag on a cheap bottle of wine, that instantly makes it taste better. Uh, the same thing with painkillers. They seem to be more effective if you've paid more money for them. And these monkeys are a lot like us in terms of how they make other economic decisions. For example, they're not so rational when they're identifying risk and they rationalize their decisions just like we do. Um, But when offered the same items of different prices, they didn't show a bias towards the more expensive items like we would. So you might be wondering, well, you know, how did the scientists figure this out, right? And I love these kinds of studies because the experimental paradigm itself is what's really cool. So let me describe it. First, they gave the monkeys a bunch of tokens that they could use to buy food from the experimenters. And in one experiment, the food was ice chunks of different colors. So blue ice chunks and orange ice ice chunks. And the two colors represent slightly different flavors. Now, it turns out that the monkeys that they studied were about, you know, half and half, half pre- preferred blue, half preferred orange. Um, and then they were given as much blue and orange food as they wanted so that, you know, the, the experimenters could see what their preference was. And, and sure enough, you know, half preferred one versus the other. Um, and then they taught the monkeys how much each flavor cost. So the cheap ice cost one token and the expensive ice cost three tokens. And what the experimenters did is that they they priced the preferred food cheaply. So if you if the monkey showed a preference for orange, that was the one that only cost one token and the less preferred ice cost three times more. And so a third phase of the experiment came along and the monkeys were allowed to then eat as much blue and orange ice as they wanted. So all of a sudden, you know, at first they had to they had to buy the cheaper or more expensive ice and then they were given access to either one and they they could, you know, eat as much of the expensive one if they wanted as, you know, as they as they would like. Now, if this was a human study. The humans then would show a preference for the more expensive item. But monkeys are smarter. They just kept ignoring the valuation and ate what they showed a previous preference for. I thought that this was fascinating. I was surprised to know that all the the previous research had been tested to see that monkeys make a lot of similarly kind of silly decisions as we do, you know, that aren't really based on logic. So because I was when I first heard about it, I was thinking, well, you know, how do how do they compare and and does this really does this really say anything new but it was interesting that this is the one place that we differ and i wondered made me wonder if it weren't because we're you know almost trained for a really long time you know as we grow up to to think that something has more value if it's more expensive and maybe that's just not part of monkey culture <laughs> yeah i mean i mean i think you're i think you're exactly right that there's something about obviously our cultural upbringing that makes us uh, you know equate higher price tag with better quality and of course we know logically that that doesn't necessarily have to be the case right i mean there probably are certain uh, items that are more expensive for a reason. You know, they say you, you get what you pay for and so on. But I mean, come on, especially in the holidays when you see all of these major retailers discounting things and having all these promotions, you got to wonder to what extent is pricing, you know, simply just manipulation by the retail industry. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think about that a lot. I think there was also research that was done. I don't know if it was research or if it was just kind of why certain stores weren't doing well that that showed that people want something that is more expensive and then is decreased, then the price is decreased, as opposed to just buying something that's cheaper in the first place. It makes us think we're getting a better value. 
That's right. And in fact, I think this is a major problem from some for some retailers who now also have outlet brand stores, right? So we used to think that the outlet stores had the same items as the name brand stores, uh, but that they were somehow lesser. They didn't sell that season or, or what have you. Um, but now it's well known that in fact, the outlet brand stores create and design their own items that are cheaper that sort of, you know, are associated with the, the name brand, uh, but that just aren't as high quality. And the problem with that model is that now the big big name stores also have a lot of promotions. You, you, know, you can go to one of these stores and you expect to get 40, 50% off of that higher priced item. And so that's sort of competing against the outlet brand stores who then, you know, it's, it's, it's harder for them to, because they're, the, the difference between their pricing and, you know, their profit is much smaller. You know, they, they can't compete as well. So it's, it's a little bit of a cannibalism within the same brand. Well, and I also just think that creating something that is just lower quality, like I used to when I was a kid, I would sometimes go with my mom to the outlet stores and it was kind of an outing and we would look for bargains on things I needed for school or things like that. But as as an adult, when I started going to the outlets, if I needed something, I just the quality was so bad. So maybe they're kind of cannibalizing themselves. I don't know. Uh, I don't really like shopping. So I don't know if I'm a great uh, (laughs) example of this, but I have no no idea. Absolutely. But I've certainly been trained because if I go into one of these big retail brand stores and I'm not getting a major promotions, I'm not getting 40, 50, 30 percent off. I just won't buy it. (laughs) It doesn't actually matter how much it costs. (laughs) The ways in which our brains are trained. Yeah, I'm a well-trained monkey. (laughs) So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with Cynthia's interview of Donald Johansson. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. There's traffic, parking, it's going to be packed with everybody mailing holiday gifts and packages. So use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. And everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it, and then the mailman picks it up. So let me give you an example of how I recently used Stamps.com. So Cynthia was visiting me over Thanksgiving, and she forgot a set of very high-quality headphones at my house. And this is Thanksgiving, right? So it's super busy, and I didn't have time to go to the post office. But all I did is went to Stamps.com, I printed off some postage, I slapped it on a padded envelope, and I put it in the mail. And it was the Friday after Thanksgiving. It was already coming back to her. So right now, get this special offer when you use the promo code MINDS, a no-risk trial plus $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in MINDS. That's Stamps.com. Enter M-I-N-D-S. Inquiring Minds listeners know the value of always having a great story at hand. And Scribd is a subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to the largest library of ebooks and audiobooks out there. So head over to Scribd.com slash Minds to get started with three months free. That's S-C-R-I-B-D dot com slash Minds. They've got more than half a million ebooks, including books by best-selling authors like David McCullough, Annie Dillard, Francine Prose, and John Perkins. Now, even better for you audiophiles, they've just added more than 30,000 audiobooks to their library, including books from award-winning authors like Simon Winchester, Wallace Stegner, and Barbara Kingsolver. That's all the books you could ever want to read or listen to on your phone, tablet, and web browser, all for just $8.99 a month. That's unlimited listening in your car, on the train, at the gym, wherever the story takes you. 
And if you go to Scribd.com slash Minds right now, they'll set you up with three months free to get started. That's three months of unlimited reading and listening, and you'll be supporting this show. That's scribd.com slash Minds. This week's episode is also sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to the classics. And what it lets you do is listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. And that's not all. Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. You just have to go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and pick one of their 150,000 and more titles to download for free. One book you might want to check out is Indre's 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. It's a 24-lecture series from The Great Courses, and it makes an excellent intro into science for the uninitiated, or it gives you a good brush-up if you haven't thought about basic science concepts like DNA or uh, thermodynamics recently. Another one I like, which we discussed over at Gastropod, that's the podcast I co-host with Nicola Twilley about the science and history of food, Nikki and I loved Paul Greenberg's new book, American Catch, The Fight for Our Local Seafood, and that is also on Audible. So you can download one of those for free right now by going to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. I'm Don Johansson, paleoanthropologist at the Institute of Human Origins at Arizona State University. It is great to be speaking with you. Um, I'm speaking with you at the Council for the Advancement of Science Writing, and you're here as one of the keynote speakers. And it's been 40 years since the discovery of Lucy. So I am sure that many people have heard this, and you've probably told this story a million times, but I still would like to hear it, if you don't mind, what it was like, how, how that happened. Well, of course, uh, looking back 40 years, pretty startling to imagine that 40 years have gone by so quickly. I was a young anthropologist, just had left the University of Chicago with my PhD, and was co-directing an expedition in the northeastern part of Ethiopia in an area known as the Afar Triangle. I had found a fossil human knee joint there in 1973 and was hoping to find more. And on the 24th of November, 1974, around noon, uh, I looked over my right shoulder and spied a little piece of bone about two and a half inches long, that come, came from the, the, the right elbow of a human ancestor who lived 3.2 million years ago. I recognized immediately that it was from a human skeleton. I didn't know how old it was. I didn't know it was a she. I didn't know if it was a new species, but I knew it came from a human ancestor. But that's just a fragment. And as I looked up the little slope where the bones were eroding out of an ancient lake bed, I could see pieces of a lake a bit of a pelvis, um, a chunk of skull, a bit of mandible. And I realized that this was a partial skeleton. Do you remember what you felt then, or did it take a little while for the significance of what you were seeing to dawn on you? Well, this was, a, this was an absolutely stunning moment in my career. It was my defi- defining moment, really. But I was so wrapped up in the excitement of the discovery, I just thought, boy, I found it. And It took quite a while, really, for it to sink in as to how important this specimen would be. I knew it was of of great antiquity, as I said, 3.2 million years. I knew there were fragments of an individual. After two weeks, we assembled roughly 40% of a single skeleton, a skeleton that had features that we had not seen in other ape men, Australopithecus. 
And I began to realize that this might be a new species, but it was going to take a lot of lab work and comparative work, and that because of its diminutive size, it was undoubtedly a female. And what's unique about that is when we were celebrating the discovery, we were listening to the Beatles tape, um, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and lo and behold, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was playing, and someone on the expedition said, I think you, if you really think this is a female, why don't you call her Lucy? And that name stuck. Did, did you like the name, or did it seem a little, like, how did, how did that feel to you at the time? Well, you know, I was uh, had just gotten my PhD from uh, University of Chicago and was on my first major expedition and thought, well, this deserves some sort of a scientific name, something like Australopithecus afarensis, which she became ultimately to be called. But it was a name that caught on immediately. The next morning at breakfast, are we going back to the Lucy site? Do you think we'll find more of Lucy's skull? How old do you think Lucy was when she died? And that has become her name, and that's how most people know her. So she's really influential, and and the discovery, as you said, was a a key discovery for you. What was so important about this? What is this? What was new, and what, what does this tell us about human evolution? The first thing that was obvious and one that we discussed almost immediately upon discovery was that we had broken the three million year timeline. All the other fossils found in Africa from either Southern Africa or Eastern Africa were perhaps two and a half million years old. And anything found older than three million years, you could put those four or five specimens in the palm of your hand. But here was an individual not just a bit of skull, not just a piece of leg bone, but associated cranial material and postcranial skeleton, meaning arms and legs and pelvis. So that was extraordinarily important because she was so old. The second thing that was so, uh, so important was her completeness. And then as we moved along in our analysis over the next several years, we saw that there were features in the teeth and jaws and skull that were significantly more ape-like than what we had seen in other Australopithecus. And this demanded a new species designation named after the Afar region, the Afar people where we worked, and named Australopithecus afarensis. And most convincing was, not most convincing, but most important really, was the preservation of a pelvis. Our pelvis are built of pretty thin bone in many places, and they don't survive. They don't survive the rigors of geological whims and caprices. And uh, here we had a pelvis. We had the tailbone or the sacrum. We had a complete hip bone or an ominent. We could reconstruct a pelvis, and that pelvis had all the hallmarks of modern upright bipedal locomotion. So that was at that time virtually the oldest important evidence for walking upright. We know that now goes much further back, almost to six million years. But she opened up a whole new chapter in human origins for us. And so as you said, you know, things have changed a lot in the past 40 years. What have we learned since then to expand our understanding since Lucy? Well, we've learned a great deal about the uh, early fossils as well as about Neanderthals. But in terms of the earliest fossil record, we can now take this back to about 6 million years where there's some leg bones from Kenya, which suggests that they were fully upright. There are good fossils at 4.4 million years old, which are called 
Artipithecus ramidus, which are still very ape-like, interestingly, with a large divergent great toe. Was this an ancestor to Lucy, or was it a side branch? It's one of the outstanding questions that people are debating at the moment. Then at about uh, four million years, we see Australopithecus, the direct ancestor to Lucy, that's found in northern Kenya. And at around 3.7, we find these fossil footprints in a volcanic ash in northern Tanzania where two of Lucy's relatives who lived far to the south of where I found Lucy walked on a volcanic ash after it had fallen and covered the ground like a newly fallen snow and left imprints of their feet. And those feet looked just like all of our listeners, the kind of footprint we leave in a sand on the beach. And we are now understanding also that Lucy or Afarensis, disappeared from the fossil record about three million years ago. And this appears to be a very important datum for us, because before three million years, the world in East Africa was much more forested and bushy. And after three million years, there was a drying. There was a much lower mean annual rainfall. There was a diversification of Lucy's descendants into many different branches, most of which went extinct, but also, I think, to Homo, which led to us. And there was a major change in the animals that lived at that time, from more closed, forested, woodland type of animals, antelopes and gazelles and so on, to animals that would live in more open areas like savannas. So it looks like this was a pivotal time in our ancient ancestry when we really were stimulated by climatic change to evolve in a number of different evolutionary trajectories. So Lucy's played a big role in science, kind of outsized beyond just one, you know, one discovery. It seems like, you know, just the word Lucy is so evocative. Has she played a, a large role in, in public education or in helping, um, helping explain evolution? Yes, uh, we we refer to Lucy all the time. We now have, by the way, almost 400 specimens of her species. But she is the poster child, right? She is the 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 the, the one that has become an icon in terms of human evolution. And she is in many ways the first individual that people learn about. Uh, at this convention, I was speaking to somebody uh, at the front desk, and uh, they said, well, wh what do you do? You've got a badge on. And I said, well, we, this, we talked about this and that. And finally, I said, well, I'm the guy who found Lucy. And she said, oh, well, I know about Lucy. I studied her in seventh grade. So she has been, I think, the touchstone for many people who are not specialists in the field. Uh, someone told me of an event where they went to dinner and a new specimen had been found by someone else. And someone said, oh, I can't keep all these names together. I can't time. I don't know. And someone says, well, you know, it's older than Lucy. And they said, oh, my gosh, older than Lucy? So she's the benchmark, I think, by which people judge uh, human origins. And she plays kind of an outsized role in in as you were saying, kind of popular understanding and even popular culture, I have to admit I didn't see the movie. But I understand that in the movie, Lucy, she refers back to her namesake. Is that true? Have you seen it That's or right. heard it? That's right. You know, I had several friends saying, you know, Scarlett Johansson, and of course my name is Donald Johansson, uh, is starring in a film called Lucy. And I said, yes. And they said, have you seen it? And I said, no. And they said, Lucy is in it. I said, you're kidding. So I went to see it. I was in uh, Santa Monica, and I went to see it. 
And there was my Lucy reconstructed uh, when Scarlett went back in time and uh, and two different scenes with Lucy. And somebody who was sitting behind us uh, heard me talking to my friend about Lucy and stopped me outside the, the uh, theater and said, oh, can I have a picture with you if you're the guy who found Lucy? I was amazed. I had no idea that Lucy was in that film. So to get back to the science, I do think that's fascinating, but I want to talk to you about the science. So in ter- you know, we've discussed a little bit about how this influences our understanding of human evolution um, and the physical changes that happened and the environment humans were living in. But how about the idea of kind of what makes us human? What about Lucy and the research that's been done since? How does that contribute to, to our understanding of the changes that lead to what we think of as humanity, humanness? Right. I think this is probably the uh, most important question facing anthropologists today. What makes us human? Uh, How and why, of course, and where and when would also be important to answer, but how do we differ from other animals? And uh, appropriately, the Institute of Human Origins, where I'm founding director, has recently received a $5 million grant from the Templeton Foundation to specifically address the evolutionary roots of how we became human. What is it about us that makes us unique? And the grant has just been received. We're just beginning 11 different projects to address this question. But we're, we're, we're framing this within uh, on three different legs. One of them is humans are unique because we live in a symbolic world. Uh, we communicate with one another with a symbolic language. We're able to abstract that world out there and communicate it in ways as we're doing right now on air that are totally unique in the world of animals. Secondly, we have a very cumulative culture. Uh, chimps, they make simple stone tools, not really stone tools, but accidentally they do to crack open nuts. They use twigs and grass to termite. But you never see in those little twigs engravings of little other chimps or something. They use the same tool, a rudimentary one, over and over and over again. Our culture is developing at an accelerating rate. Uh, technological evolution just in the last 20, million, 20 years has been absolutely extraordinary. So cumulative culture, this ratchet effect of uh, one advance advances you so quickly to the next level is unique to humans. And the third thing may sound strange to many listeners is that we are the most cooperative species on the planet. What I mean by that as an example is if you are a chimp, a male chimp in Central Africa, and you wander into another troop where you weren't born, you will be immediately killed and eaten. We communicate with each other, even with people we haven't met. I think there, I think that uh, there is, a, what is that one, Firefox, which is a uh, uh, an application for uh, surfing the net, uh, was developed by two young men, one in Palo Alto and one in Australia. They never even met. So humans are incredibly cooperative. And I think it's the synergy that accumulates be, that, that, that between these three different things, uh, cooperation, syntactic, symbolic language, and um, accelerating culture that make us who we are as humans. And so you got grants to look into this more closely. Are there interesting points of change in human development or um, discoveries that have been made in recent years that give you some lines to look into or things that you think are particularly exciting in this line of questioning? Excellent, yes. Uh, One of them is really, uh, as the late Louis Leakey used to say, that not only did man make tools, but tools maketh man. 
And our earliest evidence for tools right now is about 2.6 million years. And the earliest evidence for our own genus, Homo, which in Latin means man, is about 2.4 million years. I think that with research that's going on with the Institute and other expeditions, that we're going to see tool making go much deeper into the past. What was it that brought that about? When and where did that happen? And what was the effect on early humans of that? So there are discoveries such as that, stone tools, uh, probably uh, brain enlargement and so on, that are avenues that we are pursuing. And the, the imagery, the symbolic imagery you talked about too, there was that recent discovery of cave art elsewhere in the world, ancient cave art such as in Indonesia. Does that affect kind of the timelines as we understand them as well? Well, I think we can trace back, the, at least at this point, glimmerings of, of art in a very broad sense uh, to about uh, 80,000 years ago when we see engraved pieces of ochre in Africa. And this is the other point that is so important that all the major signposts along the way, upright walking, bodies of modern form, expansion of brains, uh, use of tools, uh, art, etc., etc., all have their origins, their genesis in Africa. So I don't like to look at Ethiopia or South Africa as a cradle of humankind, but Africa. And it's not unexpected that this happened, that, that they made art at that age in uh, places like Sulawesi. But what is wonderful is it was preserved. And uh, that seems to be a point beginning uh, that defines us really as so incredibly different from other creatures. So there's also some interesting research going on today on uh, paleo DNA, kind of the use of DNA to tease out some of these questions, looking into where were Neanderthals, what what were you know they were interbreeding with sapiens, and we have some of their DNA um, in human populations today. What do you find particularly interesting about how this can contribute to the research you've been doing? What is so fascinating about uh, the paleo-DNA work is that there is actual DNA in some of these fossil specimens. Uh, back in the 90s, the first discovery was made in the original Neanderthal skeleton that was found in 1856. Fortunately, that skeleton survived World War I and World War II. And there was enough DNA to show uh, that it was a different sequence for modern humans. And people thought that Neanderthals and sapiens did not interbreed. More recently, work has shown that we do carry Neanderthal genes in our bodies, especially Europeans and Asians. Africans don't. So there was an admixture after we left Africa. I'm about 2.1% Neanderthal. Did you get it sequenced to find out? I did get a sequence from the uh, Genographic Project at National Geographic. And uh, what is also fascinating is a simple, funky little toe bone, a finger bone, from um, uh, the Altai Plateau in Russia, from a place called Denisova, has yielded not only mitochondrial DNA, but nuclear DNA. And there's a whole sequence. And it is very different from Neanderthals. It is very different from sapiens. It means that there was another species running around out there for which we only have its DNA and no bones. And the most recent breakthrough, I was just in northern Spain, in Burgos, at the Museum of Human uh, Evolution, and they now have 400,000-year-old DNA from skeletons they found deep in a cave that probably document the very earliest beginnings of the separate lineage of Neanderthals in Europe, and that is very exciting. It's all, it's so fascinating. So how do 
How do understanding these evolutionary links, how do they affect our understanding of ourselves as humans or our place in the world and our connection to it? When I was a young boy, 13 years old, the first book that stimulated me to become involved in this strange subject to many people, but subject that's on many people's minds, was a book entitled Man's Place in Nature. And I think in the world we live in, this highly technological world that we live in, we are separated more and more from the natural world, and we don't understand how much we owe the natural world for who we are today. It was really natural selection that created us out of other forms of life on this planet. And what we're doing to our natural world is shameful. And I, I feel that these links that we find are not necessarily missing links, but links to that very natural world in which we evolved and developed. And I think it's incumbent on us to find a better way of dealing with the natural world because there really is no other place for us to move to. This is it. Mother Earth is our place. And these fossils, these interpretations are a great reminder of the commonality of humankind, that we share a common past, that the major rule in evolution is the grim reaper, extinction, and 99% of all species that have lived have gone extinct. We need to prevent that and protect ourselves and make sure that we ourselves don't bring about our own extinction. So you're still doing research in Africa, right? So what... Um where are you going? What are you doing? What, what's going on? At the moment, uh, I am. we are doing mostly homework, something that uh, we didn't like to do very much in college. But we had found many, many fossils, new fossils in the 90s and the 2000s. We're working on the very first complete skull of Lucy's species, which happens to be a female that we hope to publish next year. Uh, there are teams at the Institute of Human Origins at Arizona State University who are working in somewhat younger levels, hoping to find remains of the origins of Homo and the origins of tool making. So, and we also have a very important expedition in Southern Africa at Mosul Bay, which is more between sort of 75,000 and 200,000 years ago. When we see the glimmerings of modern human behaviors, heat treatment of rock to make stone tools, extensive use of ochre, for example, uh, the manufacture of very small artifacts called microliths that might have been used as uh, bow and arrow points. So we, we have a number of expeditions uh, throughout Africa and are continuing this pursuit of the past. And how do you feel these days? Do you get the same thrill in the field that you did at the time 40 years ago when you were out there and, and discovered Lucy and, and kind of had, had these key events in your career? How, what's it like today? Well, I do. I, I travel to many of these sites. I occasionally get into the field, not as much as I did when I was younger, but spending weeks or a month in the field, sleeping in a little tent, looking out that little tent screen at the stars going by, listening to the sounds around you, you really feel you're, you're part of the natural world. You are where man was born. Donald Johansson, thank you so much for joining me today for Inquiring Minds. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Great interview, Cynthia. Thank you so much for doing that. Yeah, it was fun to do.
And it, it really, it brings Lucy to life to me. And I loved hearing the story of how her name was coined and then how it just kind of stuck. It's kind of amazing that way. I love how they were out there in the field and everyone kept on being like, so are we going back to Lucy? Are we going to go back to the Lucy site? And it just stuck for now 40 years. Yeah. And it makes me wonder too, though, if in some ways it gives her more gravitas than perhaps she deserves. I mean, even now, of course, there have been other fossils that have discovered that one might argue may be slightly more important or older or what have you. But Lucy still seems to me like the, you know, the pinnacle. Yeah. You know, he discussed this in the interview that there are, you know, there are, there's a cohort. Lucy had a cohort. I think there's a, a couple hundred other fossils from around the same time. And we've now discovered older ones. But there's something about that time period and when it was discovered and the fact that she was named and it was the first one. And and somehow it just kind of wormed its way into public consciousness in a way that none of the other ones have. Yeah. So this is the end of our three-part series. And you've listened to all of these interviews. You've conducted two of them yourself. So what's your big takeaway? I think my big takeaway and something I just find really fascinating is that we've learned so much. We've learned so much about our archaeological history, our evolutionary history. We've learned so much about our DNA and our genome and even our history through genetics. But there's still so much to learn. We still have so much to try to unravel about the role of DNA in health. We have so much to unravel as as Donald Johansson was just talking about, about what makes us human. It's like we, we have so much knowledge, and yet there's still so much ahead of us. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what really is the take home for me, too, is just how far we still have to go before we can create from scratch another human being with all of the qualities that, that you know, we would want. Uh, so we're not quite ready for the Cylon invasion. No, not at all. <laughs> I don't think we have to worry about uh, Battlestar Galactica at the moment. <laughs> well, that's it for another episode. Cynthia Graber, thank you for joining us on Inquiring Minds. You're welcome. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode and continuing to be great supporters of our show. I'm very grateful. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, cookie recipes, or holiday book ideas, anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Listeners, help Inquiring Minds stay free to download by completing this short anonymous survey. It'll take no more than five minutes of your time, and your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our podcast and its listeners like you. Listeners who complete the survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win. So please go to podsurvey.com slash minds. That's podsurvey.com slash M-I-N-D-S to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. And this episode was sponsored by Stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. It'll be packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts. So use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. No more trips to the post office. Use promo code MINDS for this special offer, a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes $55 of free postage. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter. Enter Minds. That's stamps.com. Enter M I N D S. 
And once again, this episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.